Welcome back from your break. And please open in your scripture to the book of Exodus. We are concluding our series in the book of Exodus. Uh, Not this week, but in two weeks. This is the second or penultimate message in our series. And it brings me uh, much joy. I'm mentioning this to the, the guys on Tuesday at our elders meeting to have finished with you, to have journeyed with you through this lengthy book of the Old Testament that is foundational, not only to the Old Testament, but to what we read about Jesus in the New Testament. Today we're looking at chapters uh, 39, I'm sorry, 30, I have a typo at the top of my first page, 35, beginning in verse 4, um, through the end of chapter 39, but I'm not reading every verse as we've done before when we've taken chunks and we've condensed it. So we'll read a section, I'll comment on it. It's representative of uh, the rest of that section and for time's sake and and also your, um, your patience with me, I think that will serve you. And then some simple reflections based on what we read um, here. I hope this is true of you. It certainly is true of me and members of our family is that we are always fascinated by the construction of new buildings, um, particularly when those buildings uh, take several years to complete. And there's usually a story behind that building, both its architectural design and its purpose. What recently was drawn to my attention is there's also quite a bit of interest in some of the larger buildings in our cities that remain standing and that have stood for, in some case, centuries, uh, and the details of how they were built and the purpose for which they were built. And of course, one of those buildings is the Industrial Trust Building in Providence, also known as the Superman Building. Superman because the Superman TV series uh, that I think was done in the 60s, a color series. They would use the Industrial Trust Building. You may have known it as the Bank of America Building or the Fleet Bank Building. It was originally called the Industrial Trust Building. was the, the backdrop for the Daily Globe where Clark Kent worked. It is the tallest building in Providence. You probably knew that. You see it at night. Its towers are lit. If you've been down for water fire, the summer festivals along uh, the river there, you see the Industrial Trust Building, also known as the Superman Building, there at night. Built in the 1920s, renamed in the 80s when Fleet Bank acquired it, purchased by the Bank of America in the early 2000s. It is lied empty since 2012, but there are no plans to demolish it because this is a building that in many ways defines the landscape of Providence. Did you know that the limestone that was used to sheath this steel frame structure came from Indiana? Indiana's known for its limestone. And the granite at its base came from Deer Isle, Maine. 
and its six wings that stem from the central tower uh, is likened to some of the great skyscrapers in New York City. That was the purpose for its design. People always remember and like to talk about how great buildings were built. Well, today we look at those chapters where the tabernacle was built. Four chapters in detail of how it was constructed. Some 50 chapters have almost led, will lead to this, this culminating act. And for 500 years, the tabernacle served for Israel as God's portable dwelling place on earth, the meeting place between him and Israel, between Yahweh and his covenant people. And so it's worth considering the details of its construction as we read beginning in chapter 35, verse 4. This is God's word. We're going to read all of chapter 35, but I promise you we will not be reading all of the subsequent chapters, but it gives you and I a taste of the context for today's message. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing the Lord has commanded. Take from among yourselves a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and donk stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils, the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light, its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars, its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, and the pegs of the court, their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons, and for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches, and earrings, and signet rings, and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, 
every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed the blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's-haired or tanned ramskins or goat-skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onk stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, see, the Lord has called my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for the setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Asimach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen by a, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, so many details, and yet I pray through my simple economy of speech, you would help us to see and behold your glory in the tabernacle and how it points to Jesus, our Savior, and how Jesus points us to the church as in Christ we are also called the dwelling place of God now. Be glorified this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm sure when a building is under construction, like a sermon series that has spanned a year and a half, there are times when it seems like it will never be finished. But we are at the end of Exodus, and in this story, this true story, we are at the final stages 
where through both their generous offering and these gifted, if you will, subcontractors, if I can use that language, Moses being the project manner, the tabernacle is finished. It is built. The priesthood with its garments are sewn. And at the end, as we'll see in just a moment, of this construction process, the narrator, who is most likely Moses, says, and Israel did all that the Lord commanded them. Israel did all that the Lord commanded them. In constructing the tabernacle, the people of God followed the plan that was laid out in chapter 26 and 27, 28 and 29 on the mountain. Israel followed the plan and did all that the Lord has commanded them. What I want to accomplish today is now we expose us to the text and the time that remains and consider those key ideas. But this tabernacle, this, this very large portable tent of meeting, which will serve as the, the center of Israel's worship for five centuries, this tabernacle is designed as well to show you and I Jesus Christ. To illustrate for us the person and work of Christ and what kind of relationship Jesus Christ wants to have with you and me as part of his people. So when my work is done, as fascinating as these particular details are, I will know that this is a win for you and a win for me. If you can take one part of this tabernacle and says, see, there, centuries before Christ was born, God was rehearsing and preparing and pointing his people to the Messiah, whom we now come to know through the New Testament as Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Can I give you a sneak peek? Can I give you a teaser? How many doors lead into the tabernacle? And before you answer that, how many doors does this facility have or your home have for me to get to your living room? Well, in my house, we have a front door and we have a back door. And at Crossway Church, we have the main entrance and we have the rear entrance. And in the parsonage, I don't know how many entrances we got. Three, four, most, yeah. Most houses today, most gathering places today by code have multiple entrances, right? How many doors does God command be built for entrance into his dwelling place? One, one door. And it's adorned, it's draped, as we'll read in just a moment if we get there, by a curtain or a veil. I'm talking about the entrance into the courtyard where the people of God would bring their sacrifices for worship. It's adorned, it's covered, it's not open, by a purple fabric, which is a symbol and color of kingly royalty. 
And for 500 years, the people of God of old would bring their worship through one door, one door where was adorned by, and the first thing they saw when they came into that door was a bronze altar burning hot where the sacrifice, having been killed or slain, would be placed on the altar as a sacrifice for sin, an atoning sacrifice. And we walk through that whole process. But then after they offered the sacrifice, they'd go to the next furnishing, which was a, a basin, a large tub, if you will, filled with water for ceremonial cleaning. But it was only through the door that they could enter that. So when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, when he said, referring to a sheepfold, a pen for sheep, I am the door, when, when he would say again and again and again about himself that there is a narrow gate for wide is the way that leads to destruction. Enter through the narrow gate, the narrow road that leads to life. Israel had been experiencing that reality every time they entered the tabernacle. One door, one way, overcoming their fear of what lay beyond that door, due to the promise of life, life through faith in Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. The tabernacle, as fascinating as its details are, every feature of it points in some way to Christ. And therefore, it is a privilege to revisit these pages because Christ, through the tabernacle, wants to show you what kind of savior he is and the relationship he wants to have with us as his people. All right, that's my teaser. Here's my first point, and we read this so we don't have to read any more text. The people brought Everything that was needed to build the tabernacle. They brought all the materials that God had provided them through their deliverance from Egypt to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was built exactly the way God told them to do it. You don't have to too near, but seven times in chapter 39, at the construction at the completion of the construction process, having made the, the priesthood's garments, you read this refrain again, chapter 39, verse one. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the ephod, that's the apron, verse five, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the stones and the engravings with the names of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. On and on and on again in that concluding chapter, every time Israel completed something, Moses says, and they did it as the Lord commanded Moses. 
And God blesses their work because they not only finish the project, but in chapter 40, which we'll see in two weeks, he fills the tabernacle with his glory. He fills the most holy place with the cloud as it descends and the the glory of God radiates in that. Which brings us to our second point. Did he say he's already to a second point in the sermon? We're getting out of here in 10 minutes. God's work done in God's way always received God's blessing. God's work done in God's way always receives God's blessing. Of course. Now this is a group of people that I think in some ways view themselves more as artists than construction builders. Do you remember when Moses was delayed on the mountain, they decided to become artistic and what did they do? They created a golden calf or a bull and said, this is our God who delivered us. And it broke the heart of God. And as Moses came down and saw the people reveling before this idol they had made, and Aaron saying, the people made me do it, he shattered the tablets as if to say, you've broken allegiance with the Lord. And of course, in the chapter that followed, God wasn't only grieved, judgment broke out against his beloved people. And yet, forgiveness was extended. The covenant was restored. The people pledged again their allegiance to him. And in this first test of their faith, they did all that the Lord commanded them to do. I think there's a point of application for us. The writers of the New Testament seize upon moments like this to say this is what Jesus Christ does in the heart of a sinner like Bauer Evans or you or, or someone who's considering when the grace of God first appeared, Paul writes. When the grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ, it teaches us to say no to all forms of ungodliness. The mercy that they received and the restoration of the covenant with its promise that God would be with them had created in them a resolve to do all that the Lord had commanded them to do. In other words, to do God's work in God's way in order to receive God's blessing. And so my question for us is, as we continue is, how does the tabernacle teach us in its construction the work that Jesus did? The work that Jesus did, if you will, in God's way for you and I to receive his blessing. If Jesus came to do God's work, and the tabernacle points us through its pictures and images to the person and work of Christ. If Jesus came to do God's work in God's way because he loves you, how do we receive the blessing of eternal life through the work and person of Jesus today? Well, let's consider then some of the parts of the tabernacle and then consider how they point to Jesus. 
let's consider what is built on the inside and then see how what is built in the tabernacle points to Christ, our Savior, who comes. In chapter 36, which we're not going to read, but we, we were introduced to these two project manners, Bezalel and Aholiab. And beginning in verses 8 and 9, it says that they, if this is the order in which they did it, I don't know, but the writer has recorded it this way, that all the craftsmen among the workers made the tabernacle with its ten curtains. They were made of fine linen and blue purple scarlet yawns with cherubim skillfully worked. And then beginning in verse 20 and 21, having completed the curtains, it says that they framed the tabernacle. Then they made, he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. So Rob, I think we have the picture of the tabernacle. It's a 3D graphical, there it is. And so we see, as recorded here, that these craftsmen with those that were working with them framed the entire structure and then sewed together, fashion, if you will, the curtains for the entrances to both the courtyard, which you see the large area there to the right, and then the most holy place, which is the first part of that interior space, and then a much smaller space, 15 feet, if that, the most holy, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant will be. It says that they constructed both the tabernacle and its curtains according to the plan of Moses. So, real simple application, the people of God constructed a place according to the plan of God where God would meet with his people. Where does God meet with his people today? It's not in the tabernacle there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, as beautifully as it is as a recreation. He meets with people when they come to Jesus. Jesus said of himself, I am the temple. I am the dwelling place. When people come to me, God tabernacles with them. That is really a remarkable statement because that means that every part of this building that we saw points us to him as the dwelling place of God, as the place where we could go and meet with God. So isn't that good news if you're sharing the gospel with a friend or you're, you're talking to a relative, a grandparent, or a sibling, or a coworker? is talking to you, or, or you're having some influence on your children, and they want to know, where do I meet God? And if they're like many people, they're thinking, I need to go to some place, I need to find some, some holy saint, and your privilege is to say, Jesus is the place where God meets with you, the person of Jesus. It's a relationship with him. Yeah, I believe in spaces like this and I rejoice that we can gather and worship him. But in scripture, Jesus is the place where he 
gathers people to tabernacle. Isn't that good news? That means he's with you at two o'clock today. That means he's tabernacling with you tomorrow when you go to work. That means he gathers with the prayer group at seven, but he's also with the people at 10 that are somewhere else. When we gather in Jesus' name, we gather with the place where God has chosen to live with his people. I mentioned in chapter earlier that when you enter the when you enter the tabernacle, the first thing you would see is the altar of burnt offering, the altar where the worshipers would bring their sacrifices as part of their worship. It was an altar that was, that was fired up and operating every hour of every day, no days off. The priests attended to it year round. It was an altar where the people of God would come Fearful as they may have been to enter that space because of God's transcendent majesty and glory that he had revealed throughout their journey and deliverance from Egypt to this moment. But nonetheless, given the promises that these sacrifices were acceptable, this altar, they would bring their worship and find through the priest that was there mediating God's promises and speaking to them of those truths, the assurance that yes, this is an acceptable sacrifice. Your sins are forgiven and receive the ceremonial cleansing that spoke of a conscience, cleaned and sanctified hearts set to serve the Lord. What motivated worshipers in their day to overcome the fear, think about this, of entering that courtyard to offer their sacrifice, knowing that the God of the Exodus is a fearful God. He is a holy God. He is the Lord and creator of all who was chosen to dwell. What motivated them to continue the journey in to offer What empowered them to overcome their fears? The promise of life in knowing Yahweh and being loved by him. And isn't that what Jesus offers? I think before I was a Christian, the biggest obstacle was not fear that he was going to strike me down. <laughs> no, maybe I should have been more thinking that because biblically illiterate was the fear of surrendering control. Was the fear that if somehow I said to Jesus, Lord, take control of my life, he was going to say and do things that were going to rob me of life. So I'm not surprised on this side of my conversion that the biggest obstacle I encounter and where God always seems to bring clarity and conviction for growth points is when I fear to do what he says, to do God's work God's way. Because I fear that if I surrender my control in this situation, I'll lose my life. 
I told you the story, but since we're doing it again, it's worth repeating, and I'm turning for home. I still have an acute fear of heights. And so when we go hiking in recent years, the trails that we've hiked inevitably have a point in that hike where there is an exposure. Do you know what exposure is on a hike? It's not the elements, it's there's a drop off. And you realize, if I walk off the edge, I die, right? This is the end of the story. And yet, I'm with people that are hiking these trails and standing on these ledges and, and doing these things that I'm like, young and old, like, how can they do that? Are they not fearful of death while they're hiking these trails like a Katahdin or one of the 48s or some of the trails and peaks out in? And what has brought me courage besides praying is two things. There is life, life when you walk through your fear and get to the other side of the trail. But there's usually another person there who's not afraid that's saying, I'll walk every step with you. And that's the Christian journey. That's what Dan was saying in his call to worship. There are things to fear, but I'm fighting for you. You can walk through these fears because I'm with you. That's what empowered these worshipers to come into the courtyard to offer their sacrifice on the altar to receive ceremonial cleansing. And of course, we know Jesus, he has offered the ultimate sacrifice on the ultimate altar as a perfect substitute. Amen? As the Lamb of God, free from blemish, willingly, lovingly dying in our place on the cross and being vindicated in his offering by his Father through the Spirit in his triumphant resurrection. So when people come to him by faith and confess the name of Jesus and turn to him and say, Lord, I know I turn to you because I've sinned against you. Please forgive me, but I turn to you and I begin to surrender my fear of the future and the control that I've so tightly held to. And I now submit myself to you and I desire to walk with you and do God's work in God's way that you will bless it. And he's right there, isn't he? That's the testimony of every Christian. Of course, we get to the most holy of holies. And we, as we get there, we see a lampstand that's full of light that illuminates that, that second area closer, but not all the way in. And of course, Jesus said, I am the light. And we get to an altar of incense, which symbolizes prayer being offered continually. And Jesus continues to make intercession for his church and for you and me. Hebrews says he prays for us, he intercedes for us to save us to the uttermost. The incense never ends. It's always filling the presence of his father because he is our advocate. And then we enter into the holy of holies and we see there the ark of the covenant with its lid forged in gold and its mercy seat with the cherubim winds, these mighty angels covering, there resides the the covenant, the tablets of the covenant and Aaron's staff and perhaps some of the manna. And it, it points to Jesus is our 
promise keeper. He is the mercy seat. He is the one who keeps promises. He is the one who fills God's presence with his prayers. He is the one who illuminates our lives with his presence. The tabernacle points to him. And therefore, when I see that God in his mercy with attention to detail, devoted four chapters to its construction. And I asked the question, why? Why? Why would the people of God reading this for centuries and worshiping you through this portable tent of meeting, this de- why would you do it? Because it prepared them as it points us to how God's work of salvation is done in God's way in which he always gives blessings when we turn to him. Last point, Jesus Christ is the tabernacle. And when we turn to him by faith, he meets us where we are and we receive eternal life. Friends, what part, let me frame it this way. If Jesus is the door, the way for your relationship with God, are you tempted, I'm tempted, to find another way into God's good favor and blessings? If Jesus is the door, the way to life, and yet there's this fear within you. Remember you used to talk about FOMA, the fear of missing out? That if you follow him, if you trust him, if you submit to him, if you, if you obey him in this way, you'll miss out. If Jesus is the door, the way to life. Does that part of the tabernacle invite you this morning to receive through him the blessing of what he came to do for you in order that you and I not only would come to him by faith but through the faith that we are given experience what it is to have God show us who Christ is and what kind of relationship he has with us as his people. Lastly, we've been anointed, and there wasn't time to develop this, but we've been anointed as a body of believers, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and set apart to do God's work in God's ways. How can we do God's work in God's ways as a church community? I think a week of prayer is a part of that. Serving others, whether it be in the household of faith or outside of these walls, is a part of doing that. Sharing Christ with others as we invite others to come and and join us in this celebration is a part of doing this because we believe that the 
gathered church, the tabernacle, is also, as the apostles described it, the household of God, the tabernacle of God, set apart to do God's work in God's ways. How can we do that and display the life of our glorious Savior who lives for us today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in these details of a plan enacted, of a tabernacle constructed and finished according to all that the Lord commanded, that the New Testament using these passages points us to the sending of your son. And so I pray for anyone in the sound of my voice, Lord, that has not come to you, Lord Jesus, by faith, who has not made their home with you, the tabernacle of God, who, whether it be out of fear or, Lord, some other obstacle, would you reveal your glory and presence this morning to us. That we would say, as we said at the beginning, that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life. And through him, I can come to the Father today and receive grace. Lord, I also pray for we who are believers and we're on that journey and there are things in our lives, obstacles that we feel or face, fears that, Lord, we, we sense or don't sense, but that hinder us. We pray like the worshipers of old, we would enter your presence for the promise of life that awaits there, knowing that Jesus has done it all. He has finished the work and we can enter by faith eager to receive the fulfillment of that promise, and by your grace, Lord, receive the blessing of the work Jesus did, God's work in God's way, always results in God's blessing. Bless us, Lord, with more of Christ, we pray, as we work for you today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.